<laughs> and sometimes it's not even a blinker. Sometimes you just veer that way and cut people off in traffic and it's really ugly, but that's what you needed to do and that's okay. That is Sonia Livingston, author of The Virgin of Prince Street, Expeditions into Devotion, a CNF pod alum, making her triumphant return to HQ. I love it, baby. Let's do an ad read. Creative nonfiction podcast, CNF, the greatest podcast in the world. Discover your story with Bay Path University's fully online MFA in creative nonfiction writing. Recent graduate Christine Brooks recalls her experience with Baypath's MFA faculty as being, quote, filled with positive reinforcement and commitment. They have a true passion and love for their work. It shines through with every comment, every edit, and every reading assignment. The instructors are available to answer questions, big and small, and it is obvious that their years of experience as writers and teachers have made a faculty that I doubt can be beat anywhere, end of quotation. Don't just take her word for it, man. Apply now at baypath.edu slash M-F-A-A-A. Classes begin January 21st, 1st, 1st. Also, thank you to River Teeth, the Journal of Nonfiction Narrative, for their promotional support. Check them out and submit your work, bruh. Riverteethjournal.com. Parental Advisory Explicit Riff. Hey, CNFers, I'm Brendan O'Meara. Hey, hey. And this is the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, the show where I talk to badass writers, filmmakers, and radio producers about the art and craft of telling true stories. I chart their journeys and try to tease out tactical nuggets so you can get a little bit better at your own work. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're feeling good... If you're jacked up on your sixth cup of coffee, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a buzzed review of the show. Did you delete Facebook this week? If you didn't, you can like the show's page over there or keep the conversation going on Twitter and Instagram. Both are at CNFPod. Let me know what resonated with you on a particular show. With this one, this one's a nice tight 30. It's a good energy and a tight 30. Not that I don't like spending an hour with people, but sometimes 30 minutes, you can, you, can, you can get a good show going in 30 minutes. So, you know, whatever. What's on your mind? What are you struggling with? Are you enjoying the CNF tapas on Monday? The CNF snack? A little motivational Monday stuff? I've done three so far. I hope you dig them. They're snackable, shareable, good stuff. I think one or two of you do actually like it. That is something, right? Right? I hope I've made something worth sharing, so please link up to the show and share it with your CNF and buddies. So like I said, Sonia Levingston brings her badass self back to the show to talk about her latest book, The Virgin of Prince Street. We're going to get right into it. We're going to get right into it. Why waste any time? This is the Black Album phase of the show. You know it's sad, but true. new book, The Virgin of Prince Street, uh, started for you? What was that initial seed? 
Well, I'll, I'll go back a little bit and say that a lot of the essays that I'd written, probably ever since the, the first essay I wrote, always sort of had Catholicism in the background. And people would point that out. They would say either, oh, you're a Catholic writer or, you know, you seem to talk about Catholicism a lot. And I would get a little offended, like, what are you talking about? I'm clearly not writing about, you know, the church. But in this case, actually, after many years of writing, uh, and also sort of noticing how we're changing as a culture in, in many ways, but especially re related to religion and churches closing, I decided to be uh, to sort of own it and also become a little bit more purposeful about uh, exploring Catholicism. And isn't that isn't that crazy that sometimes when you're when you do enough writing over time, certain things just kind of bubble up to the surface without you even knowing it. It's just like this thing that, that happens and you don't even know it. it's this undercurrent. But it took someone else saying, telling you that like, this thing just keeps happening, man. Like what's going on <laughs> yeah. here? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe there, I don't know how it is for other people, but they're probably the things that I don't want to see that are more challenging because uh, for, for me personally, but I think also just as a culture, religion is just a loaded topic, right? So for somebody to say, oh, you, you know, you're writing a lot about church, you're writing, I didn't want to hear that. And yet I did have to admit that, yes, this does seem to be a consistent backdrop for my writing. Uh, and into, I think part of being a nonfiction writer, especially, but maybe all writers, part of what I think we um, hopefully are doing is looking at those topics that are not being talked about, that we are uncomfortable with or that the culture is uncomfortable with, and to sort of push yourself and go there. Do you find and did you find over the course of your research that uh, are, are people more uncomfortable with religion or Catholicism in particular? <laughs> well, well, I think I think Catholicism is its own brand of discomfort. You know what I mean? Like I think religion is loaded, but if you are, you know, you have any connection to the Catholic Church, you're going to have some stories there. Whether it's, you know, there's so many to choose from, right? So it is lately for the past couple decades especially loaded, but maybe it was always loaded. But you know, I, I had a um, a student in one of my undergraduate workshops who, in the workshop, would write about. Uh, he wrote about being in prison, about shooting up drugs, about r robbing a bank and everything. Everything was just out there with him. And he once asked for a, a, a private appointment with me because he wanted to talk about something that he was embarrassed to bring up in class. And I thought, what on earth is this? Because this man brings up everything already. But it was uh, an experience that he'd had in solitary confinement in prison that he called a spiritual experience. And he couldn't talk about that in class. And so I do think that there is something especially problematic about trying to give words to an experience, whether it's religious or spiritual or whatever, that sort of defies words. So it's, it's you know, there's a lot in the culture that goes on about Catholicism or Christianity. But I think on a personal level, we also don't really know how to talk about these things. So as his teacher, in that in that conversation, like how do you navigate that so or and make him feel comfortable to maybe uh, approach that subject matter on the page and in class, perhaps? Well, yeah, that's a good question because I was really care carefully. I didn't want to push him to 
you know, I, so, so the answer is that I listened and I could share my experiences and could say, you know, it has been rewarding for me to go to the places that have been challenging, whether it's writing about poverty or women's lives or now religion, those topics that seem so embarrassing or off-putting are often the, the topics that bear, you know, all kinds of fruit. So I certainly encouraged him, but I didn't want to push him too much to uh, go there if he wasn't ready because because I was aware of the fact that he did write so openly about every other thing. So I was supportive, but also sort of let him know that he will write the thing that he needs to write in good time. I just noticed that um, in the writing workshop, the things that you think would be hard to write about are often not the things that are hard to write about, you know, such as violence or sex or, you know, um, family problems. We, we as a culture are more open to those topics than others. And, and for a lot of good reasons, I think uh, the topic of religion is just loaded and, and lately really politicized and it gets ugly fast. A grad school mentor of mine, Tom French, he, um, one of the greatest things that he, he taught me was um, with, with heavier subject matter or things that are weighty, uh, like religion or someone who's who's religious, if you're reporting on them or writing about them, was like the heavier and and more loaded a certain topic is, the the more you want to actually kind of like turn down the language on it, turn the volume down on it, is what he told me, because the subject matter itself will amplify it. So as you approached writing about Catholicism in your journey to sort of refine, like, yeah, refine it, if you will. How cognizant of you uh, were of, like, of the language itself and not trying to be too over the top with the language to find that right balance? You know, it, um, I was aware of it to answer your question, but I think it partly is my writing style to be a little bit, to, to be a little bit more restrained when I'm describing, in this case, I was describing a lot of other people. I mean, the, the book is about my own personal experience, but I make a lot of journeys um, in, in sort of observe and interview people who are in the Catholic Church or doing different things. And so I really tried to, or was aware of having distance between myself and what was happening and my understanding of what was happening. And so I thought of myself almost as more um, more like an anthropologist or journalist in some cases, where I wanted to just sort of give, get, describe and help the reader see where I was. But I didn't want to put my my personal, too much of my loud personal uh, reactions on the page, a little bit, just to get people involved. But religion especially, I mean, the language is so bombastic already. How, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I actually talk about that in the book, like even using the word God is just, it's so loaded, right? So you besides that it's a, uh, I, you know, like, like your professor told you, it's a, it's a, it's a tenet of good writing to, to sort of back off a little bit when the subject matter is heavy. I think especially with religion or, or with a subject where the, the vocabulary is already so heightened. Um, I was very aware of sort of backing up, backing off a little bit and also just sort of exploring language itself so that we could begin to have that conversation. What does it mean when somebody says, I mean, people use Jesus language or all kinds of things. And that made me pretty uncomfortable, which may seem weird for somebody who's writing about Catholicism. But that was part of what I was writing about is how those uh, how that language can be so loaded and really shut people down. And what was that experience like for you taking on more of a sort of journalistic approach to some of these essays versus the ones that are more strictly personal? 
That was really great. It was really new for me. I mean, I'd already, you know, I sort of started off as a straightforward memoirist and I love the essay. And so I'd written, you know, sort of lyric or lyrical essays for a long time. Uh, and so there, you know, there were sort of elements of research uh, that I would weave in and sometimes a little bit of travel. But this was the first time when, where I, I said to myself, okay, I have this question. And instead of merely sort of um, tracking the question on the page, I'm going to get my, my body involved and I'm going to go to a place or I'm going to interview a person or do a thing add this sort of active, uh, dynamic engagement quality, uh, which is, is journalistic or like travel writers do. And uh, it was new. It was a little uncomfortable at first, but it really resulted in writing that, like, you know, you had just asked about, like, how do you sort of back off with all the personal big language around a topic like religion? Well, getting into uh, action and interviewing people who are doing things or going to places that were really interesting was a really natural way to allow that to happen because I would have like a ready-made setting and really interesting characters and situations. Uh, so it was, I, I had to sort of push myself and uh, I'm so glad that I did because I think the writing was better as a result. And now in my classes, I actually, I have students do the same thing. I call it a quest essay and I ask them to go out and uh, do something, add some sort of contemporary dynamic element to the question that they already have. Early on, I believe it's actually the first page of the book, you said, like, um, you know, the statue was shorthand for many things. And you're in search of this one statue from the church, uh, Corpus Christi, where uh, in the town where you grew up in Rochester, New York. And uh, what were you in search of that transcended the, the mere search of this statue? And how, how, how was that statue a conduit for the, the ultimate search you were on? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, it worked very well symbolically, the statue, which is such a traditional symbol of Catholicism and a, a traditional symbol of devotion for Catholics and non-Catholics. Lots of non-Catholics don't understand Mary at all. They don't get it. And so um, she, the statue, worked in that way to, to sort of uh, to serve as a, a model of devotion or, or Catholicism. But she also worked really well as an object for, for helping me to explore the status of the church currently. So I, you know, there's this whole um, sort of thread in the writing where I'm looking for this statue. I'm trying to find her because she's been removed from the chi my childhood church. And I end up going to Pittsburgh and Buffalo and, and looking for her. And where she, I'm saying she, but where this statue ended up and some other religious statues have ended up, wasn't coincidence. It actually mattered where they ended up. The, the statue, the object itself, told a story that was larger than it, and that was more about what's happening in the church. You know, churches are closing all over the, the sort of Rust Belt in the Northeast. And so that statue then becomes something other than just this object, this one object in one church. Mm. And you write also that I know I'm unlikely to succeed and see by their expressions that my desire to launch a full-scale statue search makes no sense to anyone else, but some of the most important things in life make no sense. And whether I'm able to find Mary or not is hardly the point. The point is that I need to try. And I, I love that. And I wonder what about this kind of felt like it made no sense and what about what about this was so strong a pull that you needed to do it, you needed to try. Yeah, well, a lot of it didn't make any sense. Like just starting 
starting with going back to the church. Like at first it was a novelty. I'll see these ladies from when I was little and see if I remember any of the words to the prayers. At first it sort of started off as sort of, you know, I'm sort of looking at what's going on here. But over time, I began to attend church willingly. Like I was actually going and it didn't make sense. Just like the statue search didn't really make sense. And I think a lot of these essays or a lot of the writing were in large part trying to explore a way of knowing that was different. So um, not that I stopped using my brain completely, but I became very open to ways of knowing that aren't just relative to uh, the way that we typically understand. I think a lot of this going to church or uh, exploring, you know, these these different what I called expeditions were about trying to find out if there were other ways of understanding the world around me beyond the way that I had been relying upon. And, and uh, a lot of these essays challenge me in that way. Like I have one about going up to uh, a shrine in, in Montreal and seeing uh, or talking about the, the heart relic. There's a, a famous saint up there who's got uh, a heart relic. In, in the oratory, and that's a really strange thing. And it was odd to sort of participate in that, but at the same time, I was very curious about like, what am I learning? What's different on, you know, on this expedition than the others? So I don't know if that's making sense, but I think on some level, my heart was kind of being challenged in my head, which had already been challenged, and I did pretty well with my head for a lot of years, was sort of taking a back seat sometimes, and that was really important. Can you cite other examples in your life that that were important that didn't make sense, but you pursued it anyway? Yeah, I guess every love ever, right? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, I think that there are other, are other examples, and a lot of them have to do with love, you know, or something like affection, where it feels like you could make a list on paper on the person that you should fall in love with, or... Um, I was actually just interviewed by somebody and they're like, why the Catholic Church? You could at least be a Unitarian because on paper, like politically and all these other ways, you seem like you should be this, this sort of progressive Unitarian. But in fact, it turns out that for me anyway, religion was more like falling in love than, um, you know, writing a dissertation. So different parts of my brain were engaged. But yeah, I think any kind of love, whether it's family relationships or romantic love, a lot of times that's one of the few occasions in our lives where we actually let, most of us anyway, we let the brain sort of have it, you know, it's still running and functioning, thank goodness, but the heart for a minute, what I'm calling the heart, which is really this part of uh, uh, I can't believe I'm talking about this stuff, but this is, it, you know, the heart for a moment takes over and uh, we're sort of blindsided. And um, I think other times are like when somebody dies, suddenly we don't, our brain doesn't function very well. Like we're thinking and we're doing what we need to do, but it doesn't really make sense. So I think those big moments of like love or death, uh, really uh, suddenly there's another part of us that sort of rises up hopefully and tries to make sense of things. And I was just interested in what that part was because it's a culture we really don't talk about it very well. And even now I'm sort of blunder, you know, like sort of only trying to talk about it in a way that might make sense. Yeah, and, and speaking to the... The heart. Uh, I think a lot of this, you know, for someone like like you, who's a ve who's like very very bright writer, you know, a teacher, you, and and you, and you travel a lot, um, and of course you're you're a thinker too. And so a lot of this, a lot of this story is sort of about relinquishing or surrendering some of that, some mm -hmm. of that your the headspace to something that's a, a bit more resonant on a. Uh, uh, let's just say a deeper level for lack of a better term. Um, what was that like for you to maybe just 
maybe not over overthink and over intellectualize and just kind of surrender to to the feeling of you know of this journey and specifically the Catholic Church. Yeah, I like how you said that so much. Thank you for that question. Um, relinquishing is a really great word. It was really challenging. I mean, it's really hard. And I think um, that that is why, because I am used to navigating the world with my thoughts and let's face it, my judgments, right? <laughs> so uh, a lot of the reasons, uh, if, if the part of me that thinks and judges so uh, so sort of naturally, we're only in charge. I could have never done any of these trips because I, I'm very judgmental. I, mean, I categorize the world into good and bad, and that's just what I think the brain does. But to suddenly sort of let go of that a little bit, not all the way, but a little bit enough to be open to other people and experiences that uh, on paper don't really make sense was challenging but really rewarding, which is why I kept doing it and which which is why, I mean, I think underlying all of this is really about this question of uh, sort of letting go of the need to judge, to sort of parse good from bad, and particularly with the church, which I had always loved. And there were some things about the mass, for instance, that I had always loved. But when my head entered the scene, like, what does it mean that we say this is the body of Christ? Or what does it mean that I'm attending a church where women cannot preside or that, you know, there's a sex abuse scandal? When my head got involved, then it would just sort of fall apart. So a lot of this was sort of uh, allowing both to occur at the same time, to sort of not forget my ability to think but also to open up to people and experiences in a different way. And that was important beyond or is important beyond the topic of religion. I think politically in our country, we are so divided right now uh, that I find this experience with having gone to church or you know done these explorations has helped me uh, to, to deal with people who are different in other ways as, as well. And I, I like this uh, line you Oh, well, I think it was in the the essay where you go down to that that mobile confession bus, uh, mm-hmm. and um, you say it's not confession I struggle with so much as contrition, and right. and I wonder if you could expand on that. Well, I think what I was saying there is I think in the old days, right? So especially like my parents' generation, but um, uh, the idea of uh, confessing your sins was really hard. People didn't open up. Like I said in the works earlier about that kid in the workshop and how it was hard for him to talk about religion, but he was fine with talking about, you know, drug use and all this other stuff. Well, you know, like 50, 75 years ago, it would have been the complete opposite, right? Like, so, so people would have been unable or un, it would have been very really difficult to open up. But that's not our trouble anymore. I think we open up pretty well with each other. We will say, like, I could post on Facebook or something right now, a challenge that I'm having or, you know, like, oops, I just ate too much candy corn again, you know, ha ha ha. Like, <laughs> that is okay. But I think that the, the part that is hard for me and I think other people is, is to... Um, be sorry about something that we've done. And it's tough to talk about because it sounds like I'm saying we should be really sorry or we should be guilt. No, I think it's guilty. I think it's good that we've thrown off a lot of the bad trappings of religion, all of that guilt and not being able to open up. But on the other hand, there is something to um, saying to another person, you know, I did this wrong or I don't fully understand this thing. And, and, and I think that confession is one way that people can do that. Now, 
because it's so loaded and because it's religion, it doesn't happen very easily. But in that essay, I'm really struggling with the fact that I don't want to go to confession. Most people who consider themselves Catholic don't even go to confession. It, it truly is a dying sacrament. So I was looking at, like, why is that? If we're okay with saying what our problems are, what's the problem? And the problem is really, I think, saying I did wrong to another person. But there's also a lot of power there. If you can do it, say, I did wrong. It doesn't need to be to a priest. It could be your partner, whatever. But there's a lot of ability there in that moment to, when you're vulnerable before somebody to have a connection that matters. Yeah. You, you wrote that you, you update Facebook and Instagram page a few times a week and have written about myself in essays and poems, but it's somehow easier to bear my soul to unseen thousands than to open myself to one human being sitting quietly before me. Yes. Yes, it's true. I don't, you know, I don't know why, but that is the power of human relationships, that it is more difficult. And I think part of, like, part of me as a writer is I, I do better on the page, right? Like, I'm better with writing an essay about a thing than having a conversation about that thing to face to face, because it requires a different sort of level of vulnerability. And yet I was just looking at or exploring a lot of these essays were about, it's not like I'm advocating that, hey, I think that you should go to confession or I should. I don't even know if I'll go anymore. It was more looking at like, OK, this sacrament or this tradition is dying and I understand why it's dying. But what happens? Like, what do we lose as the sacrament dies? So not just with confession, but when church is closed, when we stop going to mass completely, maybe something else is going to arise and it's going to be just fine. But I was sort of wondering, like, what happens next? Um, that ability to sit down in front of a human being, because most confession isn't even in a confessional anymore. It's just sitting across from the priest. But that ability to do that, that, that seems important. And so that's really what that essay was kind of investigating. And with respect to stitching these essays together, um, what was the challenge of, for you in uh, tracking them, to kind of use a music term, uh, together, <laughs> since they did kind of appear elsewhere in various forms, I imagine, and then you had to think about how you wanted to package them together. So what, what was that experience like getting these things to feel cohesive together? Sure. Yeah, that's always a tough one with an essay collection, I think, because they're written at different times and for different purposes. And even though they're clearly all about or informed by Catholicism or religion in some way, they are a little different. I mean, I'm different as I'm writing them, but... And, um, so some of it was just deciding which ones should work together as a book. But I'll say that in this case, the uh, the editor I worked with at the University of the Nebraska Press came up with the idea to uh, I had a long essay about searching for the Virgin Mary statue. And she, Alicia Christensen at Nebraska, said, why don't you divide that up and let that be sort of a through line? And that was a great idea. I had not thought of that. But that that allowed me a little bit to um sort of have the, the variety or the wide range of essays, but that they would have this backbeat of looking for the Virgin Mary statue. But it's still challenging. You know, like I have one little essay in there that really reads more like a poem, and I still wonder, should I have put it in? But it went in. It's it's just a tough one. It's really a tough one. And, and so, um, yeah, I laid them out in terms of order, tried to make them sort of chronological. Uh, but ultimately, I think that the editor helped a lot with this one. What would you say that you're maybe better at today, having written thousands and thousands of words uh, in the last five years or so than you were, say, five years ago? You know, what do you feel like you, you have a better grasp at now than five years ago? That's such a good question. Um, 
I think, I mean, it's, I think the answer is that I'm better about cutting because I, um, I often will tell my students like the thing, their gift is also their curse in writing. So those writers who are so like poetic or really love language and I put myself in that camp, we, we can overdo it. And sometimes the story itself or the, 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 the object or the idea can get a little crowded. And so I've learned to pull back and to, to really edit a lot more of those pretty uh, passages out. But I still, I mean, I still, I look at the hard copy of this book and I think, wow, I could have, I could have cut even more. But in general, I think I'm, I'm getting a little bit more distance from the writing. Uh, and, and, you know, a big thing about getting older in general, but writing especially, is just learning to trust what I'm interested in. Yeah, it's wacky to look for a statue. Yeah, it's wacky to go to Louisiana, to go to a confessional booth, a mobile confessional booth. But there was a reason that I was interested in that. And so I learned to trust that. Yeah, there's something to be said about, you know, it might be kind of just inconvenient in a sense. But like you look at you look in a certain direction and you're like, well, it's kind of the fork in the road thing. Like I could go left and it's it's nothing. But if I go right, I I don't want to go there. But there's a story there and and I'm a writer. So it's like you kind of have to just put the blinker on and go and go right and follow <laughs> your gut. Right. Yeah, that's a good way. <clears throat> that's a good way of saying it, the blinker. Yep. <laughs> sometimes it's not even a blinker. Sometimes you just veer that way and cut people off in traffic and it's really ugly. But that's what you needed to do. And that's okay. Right. And in, in the process of uh, generating pages or, even, or editing and rewriting, uh, where in this process do you feel most alive or most engaged? Good. Oh, these are really, I appreciate these questions. They're great. There, there, there's, I am most engaged. I, I'm going to be honest with editing. There is something that is wonderful about, you know, generating, but it also for me is pretty stressful because I don't know where I'm headed. I'm just sort of trusting, you know, like this matters. I notice this, I'm going to put this weird thing on the page and struggle with it there. But when I finally get through that process of sort of fumbling and pushing my way through this material and I have the first or second draft, I do really love um, going like pr I'm a nerd about editing. I like to print things out. I like to see what could be rearranged and how to make certain things uh, sort of shine or talk to each other in a really interesting way. So I do love write writing, you know, sort of generating the material. But it's a different it's a, for me, the thrill is in, in editing and sort of seeing what might be there. I think it's so important to have those kind of paper habits. That way mm -hmm. you can physically see things that you're cutting out, drawing through, rearranging. Uh, on the computer, it's, because it disappears, there's no like paper trail of, of that edit. So like to have it in hand and to see all the markings and everything, it just has such a more concrete feeling that, like, oh, work is being done here. Yes. And, and, and it feels, even though maybe I'm lying to myself, it feels like I'm in charge there. Whereas when I'm writing, and that's why it's also exciting, but in a different way, I don't quite feel in charge. I feel, um, this sounds a little strange to say, but I really do feel like a channel or sort of a camera who's noticing things and putting it on the page and hoping that it's going to make sense for some reason. And so that's really hard. It's like, you're just sort of, for me anyway, you're just sort of this open, you're a question mark and there's all this doubt, but when you're editing, it's like, yeah, you've got the, I've got a printout, I've got a red pen maybe. And it feels like, Hey, I'm in charge of the, the material. Uh, again, whether that's true or not, I don't really know, but it does feel it's a relief after sort of s struggling through the writing. 
a couple years ago, I was working at a at a Whole Foods, and I would work from like three to eleven. So I was always riding my bike home at night, and I was on this bike path. And as I got out to the main road, there was this big, big open field, and it was during the summer. And I would turn, I would turn to the right, and in this open field, pitch black, were just thousands upon thousands upon thousands of fireflies popping off, like. Yeah. And when you you write wrote the scene about fireflies in the book, and I was wondering if you could describe it because if for anyone who hasn't been able to see that kind of fireworks show coming from bioluminescent insects, it's <laughs> it's pretty special. Like, well, how would you describe it? Yeah, yours sounds really good, but it's one of those things that is hard to describe because you say firefly and it sounds so sweet and romantic or whatever, and people, you know. But um, yeah. Th- I, so I just, I'll just quickly say that I chose to write about that because it was in the essay about how the word God just doesn't seem to work because uh, whatever you think God is probably defies vocabulary or any sort of puny human attempt we could give to name it. Uh, and I think that my experiences that are like that involve nature. And so one that I wrote about was just um, following my husband, who's really wonderful about always, you know, getting us to see these great things out in the world. We just saw blackbirds, you know, migrating in these sort of huge uh, swarms, these dark clouds, and that was beautiful. We just saw migrating butterflies. Great. So this time we had to go out at night and, and I had to trust him that it was going to be good. And so we walked through the woods into a hollow and that hollow just literally broke with light. And it's, you know, I don't know how to describe it other than that, except that it's this experience where suddenly, again, that my brain is gone off, everything's suspended, and I'm just in the moment of light. Uh, and it's, you know, it's just wonderful. And like your your description of coming across that field, a lot of times these are unexpected. You can't really plan for it. I didn't know what I was going to get. And it's still, it's very powerful. Yeah, it, it reminded me of like being in a, a sports arena and tip off goes off and then all the flash bulbs are going off in the stands <laughs> and that's what it was like it was like pop 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 pop, pop yeah pop. that's cool yeah that's cool all right well we're winding down here and uh i i uh i've been doing this goofy little thing at the end of the show where i ask writers for a recommendation of some kind um maybe it's it, it can be anything to unplug from whatever it is people are doing out there and i wonder if if uh if you had a chance to think about it if you have a recommendation for uh the cnf pod listeners well, I think I'll go back to what I said I'm now doing in my classes, which is um, for for some people who are already, let's say, more journalistic or comfortable writing about the world outside of themselves, this may not be so uh, radical. But for a lot of essayists who focus a lot about their perceptions of the world and memory, that kind of thing, um, the, the thing that I recommend is going out and doing a thing that relates to the topic that you're interested in. So if you're writing about, I don't know, furniture making, uh, or your grandfather, the furniture maker, go to a, a furniture making factory uh, or, or do something. It doesn't have to be a major trip. It can be calling somebody up. Uh, but I think to add an active element to the writing, this will, will open things up in a way that will, I believe, really enrich the work and enrich your understanding to the topic and help you understand, again, like why you were even interested in it to begin with. So that's my idea is to go out there and add some other new element to the thing that you're writing about, no matter how goofy, the goofier, the better, just do it. Awesome. Well, Sonia, this was great to get to catch up again and talk about your, your wonderful new book or our latest book. And, uh, so this was great. Thank you so much for the time. And, uh, yeah.
Well, thank you so much. Your questions are really thoughtful. I mean, I think you're just a thoughtful person in general, but they're really good. I'm now, when I hang up, I'm going to write them down so that I can ask them of other people. But thank you so much for your time. Oh, of course, Sonia, likewise. And uh, yeah, ask away those questions. (laughs) (laughs) All right, you take care. You too, Sonia. Take care. Can I get a second helping of that? Did you get all that? Man, I dig Livingston. Maybe we can get her back on the show more than once every two years. Raise your hands if you want that. I, let me know what you think of, of, of a tight 30 like that. You know, Do you like interviews that are a little kind of like bang, 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 kind of like that? A little good. I kind of like the energy of a tighter episode. I think when you tell people that they have like 30 minutes that... Um, people, they tighten up their answers, too, so we can still get to a good amount of questions, still have a good dialogue. Uh, but also, when you look down your phone, and you're like, oh, my goodness, this podcast is 30 minutes. You're like, all right, I can do that. But when you look down your phone, it's like, this is 75 minutes. You're like, whoa, this is, uh, is going to be a commitment. So anyway, I'd love your feedback. Let me know, at CNFPod on the Twitter. Be sure to head over to brendanamera.com, hey, hey, for show notes to this and other shows. Keep the conversation going, of course, on Twitter and Instagram, at CNFPod, Facebook, too. We use these platforms to connect, share the show with people you like, and subvert the algorithm, man. Subscribe so you can get it on your device. Boom. There. Download. Ah. Stay tuned. Next week, I'll be talking to Bob Batchelor, who wrote a book about a bourbon bootlegger. Hmm. Hashtag alliteration. If you can't do interviews, see ya!